Let's seek the Lord as we come before the Word today. We praise you, Lord, for the reminder of the risen Christ and His reign today at your right hand. We long for His return. We long for the day when we are glorified and in your presence and delivered from sin. We know that the work has been done, the victory has been won, but as we continue to live out our life here, we plow forward against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we face the influence. But I pray, Father, that we would be encouraged today by your word to grow in faith, to trust you, to live forward as we think of the glory that awaits. And I pray for those who know not Christ, that you would draw them to saving faith today. Direct our time in your word and use us here. May the Spirit teach and guide us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. It is beautiful to see faithful Christian parents and churches partnering together to raise children who love and follow Jesus Christ. One generation passing on the faith to the next generation. It's a beautiful thing to see. And when this happens, it is a gift of God's grace. This is nothing that anyone can make happen or guarantee will happen. But what joy it is to see children learn the gospel from their parents and then run on from there to serve the Lord. But it is also a beautiful thing, I think we should insist, to see children of parents who prove unfaithful to God to grow to serve Him faithfully. This too is a gift of God's grace. We cannot make it happen and Indeed, we don't even expect it to happen. But with amazing grace, sometimes God takes parents who are unloyal to Him, unfaithful to Him in their walk, who struggle in their relationship with the Lord, and for children to come out of those homes to bypass their parents. In this too, we must rejoice. He inspires the children of weak Christians or of those who simply profess faith and don't possess it to love Him, to serve Him with zeal, to break free of the poor example of their parents and their churches. Were this not the case, the church would be dead. By this point in time, if every generation simply followed where their parents were, it'd all be over. But he raises up a new generation within families, within churches, sometimes within movements, where what the parents' example, the parents' example that is said is rejected for a deeper love and faithfulness to Christ. We find such a moment of rare beauty as we come to Numbers chapters 26 and 27. God has administered the last major judgment against the older generation here that we've considered in the book just of Numbers, let alone what comes before in the book particularly of Exodus. But remember that they have failed to believe God to enter into the promised land. They do not trust Him in chapters 13 and 14. They reject the call of God. We will not trust you. And they turn away from the promised land. Secondly, there's Korah's rebellion coupled with Dathan and Abiram. Rebellion against Moses, rebellion against God, the grumbling, the complaining, and saying, we will have no more of this. Chapter 16. And then thirdly, they committed spiritual infidelity against God by joining the Midianites in their sensual idolatrous worship. Chapter 25 and verse 9, 24,000 people fall. They're taken out by God because of this idolatrous affair with the Midianites. So even Moses has failed the Lord in the midst of these 40 years of moral rebellion and the hedonism of this generation. 
he faces divine discipline in chapter 20. But a new generation has arisen that will break free of the hard-hearted, hard-headed, hedonistic ways of their parents. Nearly all of that generation now lies buried in the desert, but hope springs to life in, number, or in, in uh, Numbers chapter 26 as the children of the unfaithful generation rise from the ashes, in a sense, to flourish where their parents floundered. We see in chapter 26 this new generation accounted for, locating ourselves again here, the, locating the Israelites in their encampments in the Jordan Valley across from Jericho in the promised land. And here we find a new generation identified, verse 1 of chapter 26, after the plague the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who are able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar the priests spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward, as the Lord commanded Moses. The people of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were, and the census then begins to unfold. But notice in verse 1, after the plague, that's a reference there to chapter 25 and this affair with Baal of Peor, the allure of the Midianite cult prostitutes seducing Israel into this vile activity and false worship and debauchery. We find a census here being taken, and that, of course, reminds us of the census that we found in chapter 1. All the warriors are accounted for there, 20, the men 20 years old and upward, that will go into the promised land and conquer so the significance here is what? It, this is 38 and a half years, give or take. Later, the older generation, now dead and buried by virtue of divine judgment, this is a new generation, a new census of warriors who will, unlike their parents, trust God and go into the promised land, showing great courage, showing great faith, and now their heads are counted as the new class of warriors. You notice in verse 4, the people who came out of the land, that is not necessarily these very heads that are being counted, but these very tribes that came out of Egypt are now accounted for again. As we look at chapter 5, and we're not going to read through each of the words and the names, literally, uh, here that uh, uh, pile up on top of one another, but I'd like you just to notice here in this second census of a new generation Three moments of interruption. They're instructive to us. So the census flows, but there's these editorial interjections that we find. The first is in verses 8 through 10. So Reuben is accounted for there. But at verse 8, the sons of Palu, Eliab, the sons of Eliab, Nemuel, Dath, uh, Nemuel Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a warning. They became a signal, a red flag almost literally. But the sons of Korah did not die. Do you see it there? We know, we know all of this account. But reminding us of this rebellious failure of the older generation, but there were sons of Korah who did not fall. There are sons of Korah, a second generation, who did not follow the rebellion of their fathers. And this is a hopeful note interjected here. Certainly a warning to remember the rebellion that took place in the older generation, but a hopeful note of those who have broken free from that rebellion against the Lord and these sons of Korah who go on to serve God. A second interruption we find in verse 19. So after Reuben, Simeon in verse 12 is accounted for and Gad. 
Then Judah begins, the sons of Judah, verse 19, were Ur and Onan, and Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Another cautionary tale from Genesis. A third interruption we find in verses 33 and following, and that's of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher. He had no sons, but daughters. So this an interruption, and we'll come back to that in chapter 27. But these interruptions all point to a new generation, less the second one than the first and the third. But I think all of them together, cautionary tales reminding us of God's grace in a second generation that comes to follow Him. Again, we'll see that more as we come to 27 on this third interruption of verses 33 and 34. But to summarize here, without painstakingly working our way through each of these names and summation, we can just see here on this graphic, in parentheses is the number of the census in chapter 1, before Israel failed to enter into the promised land, and the non-parenthetical numbers are those that we find here in Numbers chapter 26. We see that a number of the tribes increase in population, but not by a lot, we wouldn't say. And then a number of the tribes decrease in population, particularly Simeon, which probably indicates a particular orientation toward one of these rebellions against God, and that they suffered more than others in the judgment because of their disobedience to the Lord. But it's remarkable as we look at this that the numbers aren't greater. In fact, they're almost identical to the first account, both in the 600,000 range. But it's, it's, it's remarkable that the numbers aren't greater. You have people who have food, shelter, and clothing, and no really serious external attack in a day when the goal was to have as many children as possible and no birth control. And yet they're the same number as they were 40 years ago. It's an evidence of the judgment that has fallen upon the nation. God has taken out a whole generation, a portion of which ought to be here. All of them living in the promised land and being much larger as a nation. But it's also remarkable that the number is not lower God has not given up on His people. This sustained number over 40 years speaks about God taking a a break, in a sense, with these people. To wait for the first generation to die off, but not to end the nation. He has not scuttled His promises. And that's a point now that is made very specifically in verses 52 through 56. Now that the census is taken being totaled there in verse 51, we come to this statement. Verse 52. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Among these the land shall be divided by inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall... I'll add the word, also be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall, be, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to a lot between larger and smaller. So larger and smaller tribes, varying in number significantly, there will be territory assigned according to the size, but it won't be a political thing. It will be fair in this sense that they will turn it over to the sacred lot. Whatever that is, however that worked, there was a way of determining the will of God so that between two larger tribes, God would determine the inheritance of the land. Between two smaller tribes, the same thing by lot. All very appropriately laid out. But think of this. The point of this census is what? As we compare it with chapter 1, the point of this census is to number a new army. But it is also, here verses 52 to 56, in order to help them as they enter into the new land. 
the allotments that will be assigned to them. They need to know the size of the tribes because they're going to inherit the land. Think of this in connection to chapter 14. We can't go in there. We will be devoured by the enemies of God. We cannot trust God to give us this land. Now here they are, 40 years later, having passed up all of that blessing and being organized to enter into the new land. This generation will break free of the unbelief of their parents and possess the land. The, The excitement of that prospect is building here as the heads are counted. The land divided by the population of each tribe by sacred lot, but they are going in. They will inherit the land. Verse 57, this was the list of the Levites according to their clans. The army, the other tribes, the land inheritance, the other tribes, Levi's portion is the worship of God. So they are set aside and now handled separately in the census. Their census also has a cautionary tale inserted into it, verses 60 and 61. Aaron, to Aaron were born Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, but Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. So all of these interruptions, cautionary tales, which also point to a new generation of trust and confidence in the Lord. This group, these young people, if we could call them that, it's going to be a different story. They're heading into a different world, a different way of serving God. Verse 63, these were those listed by Moses and Eliezer as the chapter is finished up now. Eliezer the high priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said to them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Going back to chapter 13 and 14, only these two spies said, we can trust God. We can do this. And they alone now are left. This is new generation from start to finish in chapter 26. As we come to chapter 27, this older generation being a colossal disaster. But really, as we think on what is established in 26, moving to 27, our hearts should lift as we see God raise up this faithful generation to follow Him. We rejoice in the truth What is this saying? It's not just a dull census. What this census is saying is that God never breaks His promises. God never gives up on His people. They have failed Him often. They have quit on Him, but He has not quit on them. And He brings the nation now to the very shores of the Jordan River, to the banks of the river, as they prepare for conquest Now, emerging additionally from the story of this new generation, we have, secondly, a new inheritance law that is revealed in chapter 27. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. We didn't have any of those this morning, did we, in our uh, introduction to children. They stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs of all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So this is serious stuff. They go to the place where God meets with his people and they present a case. They say, verse 3, our fathers died in the wilderness. Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Brief break. 
died for his own sin could just be that he died, but it probably means that he died in some other judgment. The judgment of Korah, they probably lost their inheritance rights. They were wiped off the face of the earth. He wasn't one of those, is what these daughters are saying. He died for his own sin. He was like all this generation, taken out by God because of their rejection of you. But he wasn't among that group. Why, they say, verse 4, why should the name of our father be taken away from this clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. A little context here will aid us as we try to bridge the gap to a situation we don't understand whatsoever. But first of all, the cultural context. According to Mosaic law, daughters did not inherit land. At marriage, a daughter became a member of her husband's family and clan. They weren't left impoverished. It was a whole different system. But at marriage, a daughter was given a dowry by her father. That dowry would include money, maybe jewelry, clothes, furniture. If it was a wealthy father, there would probably be slaves that would go along with the daughter and livestock and things such as this. And, and much was given. In fact, she would live on that dowry through the remainder of her life, and it would be a blessing to that clan that would take her in. So that's how she profited from her father. But sons profited from land inheritance. They, they, what would happen is the land would be divided up. However many sons there were, you took that many portions, equal portions of the land, and then you added one more. So if there's six sons, seven portions. Each of the six sons gets one portion, and the eldest son gets two. And that second portion was necessary for some of the administrative oversight responsibilities that the eldest son had. That was just the basic law. That's just the way that it worked. But you can see then, secondly, the problem here. Zelophehad's daughters say, our, our father had no son. And so now what will happen as we go into the land and inherit land, we won't inherit land. And as land was connected and would be connected to the name, to the patriarchy of this man, his daughters appeal to receive the land allotment in lieu of a son, because there was not one. Third point, verse 3, our father died in the wilderness. We've talked about that. He's not judged in such a way that would disqualify him from having earned or having inherited land had he had a son, but he didn't. And then number four, the request demonstrates unusual faith. This is what I think we can easily miss as we're just saying, what's this all about? Why would I care about this law and how it applies? And if these women get land or not, what is the point? Does it matter to us? Here's the thing that's happening. These women of faith are saying, we're going into that land across that river. God has given it to us. We will enter, our armies will conquer, we will inherit land, and we won't get any because there's no sun among us. I mean, this is faith speaking. This is a brand new generation. This is not chapter 13 and 14. We can't go in there, the land will devour us, we cannot trust God. These women are saying, we trust God, and we want in on it. In the best of ways, they say this. Well, you can tell, you just see Moses here. Hmm, what do we do about this? The, the law doesn't address this at all. So he takes it to God. Verse 5. And God will supply new revelation to Moses. Verse 5. Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance. Of their father to them. What is more, you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. God anticipating this is going to happen, 
If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it, and it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule as the Lord commanded Moses. There's so much beauty in this that really misses us. But God agrees with these women. A man should not lose his inheritance because providence does not bless him with a son. And so Zelophehad's daughters will inherit the land that a brother would have inherited. And when you think about this just along personal lines, it's amazing. Here are these four younger women standing at the tabernacle and speaking about the land that they will inherit and Moses himself will never enter. There's land there that they see by faith. Moses will never see it because of the discipline in chapter 20 which will play out here in a few moments. It's a new day is the point. These are women of faith These are women that trust the promise of God. This will happen, they say. And they break free of the rebellion of their father. They break free even of the rebellion of the leader of the nation who has talked face to face with God and been a man of godly example beyond all others. Save that fateful day when he went his own direction. They will enter And God expands the legislation. And I think we see a couple of things here, not to overstress the point, but I think this legislation teaches that having only daughters is no curse. It is a blessing. And in that setting and in that day, that may have been questioned by the people that surrounded Israel. It's a blessing. It's good. And there's no harm that comes of it in this way. But secondly, and probably more significantly theologically, what we find here is progressive revelation. God has always worked this way to give to His people His law, His will, His wisdom. But He continues to supply that wisdom until the Scriptures are completed. And indeed, after the completion of Scriptures, there's much debate as to how that might continue in historically as well as in our lives, but without touching upon that idea too deeply, it is clear that God progressively reveals truth. I think a lot of what people see as God revealing truth today is just ridiculous. But all that being set aside and that debate set aside, God makes clear His law is His law, but He will continue to supply. Never, however, does the new revelation contradict what comes before? It always supplements, enlivens, fulfills, increases. And we have a sense of that as a church and will as we look at the end here today of how all of Scripture holds together and all that God reveals fits with what has come before. We see a very interesting occasion of that here in Numbers chapter 27. We come then thirdly and climactically to a new leader who is identified. Chapter 27 and verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, go up into the mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kedesh in the wilderness of Zin. And we've seen that account and that horrible moment where Moses went off script, did things his own way, and went against the purposes of God. That discipline, coming back, that was a disqualifying, a permanently disqualifying sin. All of this will be left behind someday, but not now, not here. And Moses 
suffers this discipline. You see him there in the Abarim range. We find later the pinnacle of Nebo looking down upon the promised land stretched out before him. It is a scene so heart-wrenching it almost defies comment. Can you look in Moses' eyes? From the heights he surveys the land below, his eyes filled with intense longing, although I think probably tempered by mature resignation. Before him lies the land of God's promise, the land that he had sought to enter for 40 long, hard years. All of his labors, all of his leadership, all of his walk with God, looking at this land and saying, this is where I was headed. And he's denied it. All he can do is look, feast his eyes upon the bounty of this land. Like a pastor who's committed disqualifying sin and knows that he's ruined his ministry and sacrificed untold blessing, Moses' eyes study a joy that he will never taste. His soul groans at the bitter wages of sin. But ultimately, Moses' heart, I don't think, breaks here. Because ultimately, we know he seeks an eternal city. Not of this earth. Soon he will lay his heavy burden down and he'll enter a glory that outshines all the glories of this earth. As a man of God, Moses' thoughts do not center on self here. They do not turn into self-pity. Rather, he turns in loving concern to Israel. And this says much about his character. God has closed down Moses' ministry as Israel's leader. But we note, secondly, that Moses appeals for a new shepherd to replace him. He deals with the reality of what he has done. He deals with the reality of God's judgment. And he goes on with great maturity to speak to the Lord, verse 15, and to say, verse 16, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. God, you will take this nation into that land. And they will need a shepherd. Someone to replace me. My generation has failed you, but praise God By your grace, you will replace me as you have replaced that army and you will take this new generation into this land. Give them a leader with a shepherd's heart. Give them a leader with a warrior's heart. Give them someone who can do this for the glory of your name and the good of your people. God then responds by commissioning Joshua to replace Moses, verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eliezer the high priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. Lay your hands on him, that is, a transfer of authority, one who stands in another's place, who picks up another's task. Joshua's commissioned to lead, and Israel is commissioned to follow that lead. Verse 21, And he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. What's the continuity? There's going to be one who hears the voice of God, goes into the land, and leads Israel. Coming in, going out, knowing when to leave, when to stay, when to attack, when to rest. That's the continuity. What's the discontinuity? Moses met with God face to face at the tabernacle. Joshua will appeal to the Urim. 
often coupled with the thumine, the ureme and the thumine. We don't know what it was. We don't know exactly how it functioned precisely, but it was a means by casting lots or something of the like that determined the will of God in specific situations. It was entirely appropriate in that day and time and setting. Don't try it at home. It is not for us. This is gone. We don't even know what it was. I've got a professor who wrote a paper on it, and you wouldn't believe what he said. I mean, it's, it's, it's really weird to us, but we don't need to try to duplicate it, and I wonder if that's not part of the reason that we've lost what it is. But this is different. Joshua will not need to meet at the tabernacle face-to-face with God. God will, has now brought them into the land, and this new generation will operate a different way. Take note, 21st century evangelicals. How God revealed His truth in the past doesn't mean that He must reveal His truth exactly that way in the present. God does alter how He reveals His truth. Sometimes it's very dramatic, Moses face to face, His face actually glowing. Other times it's not so dramatic. Joshua appealing to the high priest who cast some sort of lot to determine the yes and the no of a question. All of it's from God. We rest in the place where we stand and what He supplies. This book is our supply. This book is His Word. This book, now completed, telling us everything about the beginning that's necessary and everything about the end that is necessary, This is what we need for life and godliness in our relationship with Christ on this side. This is all God's prerogative, and God knows the means of instruction that will prove sufficient in the land. Verse 22 and 23, Moses complies with God's plan. And the Lord did as the and, and Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. A new generation, a new generation, a new generation, all the way through these two chapters. A generation that stands up out of the ashes of their parental failure and examples to trust God and do what is right and follow His will. They're ready now to journey in faith unto what lies before them. And God will indeed shower grace upon their courageous obedience. Well, just a few points of reflection as we consider these chapters that are very far removed from us in some ways, and yet there are the sinews that tie it to our own day. We cannot fail to see the necessity here of leadership, the leadership of God's people. Passing the torch of leadership from Moses to Joshua is very dissimilar to the passage of leadership from one generation to the next in the local church. There is, however, a theme here that is applicable to our life together in God's family. It is a theme that does play out and find precedent in the New Testament text. We're reminded by Moses' saga that no generation must serve Christ as if everything ended with them. Our leadership in the church, in whatever capacity, is immature and it is incomplete if we hold on to our post and refuse to raise others up to take over when our days come to an end, when our leadership comes to an end. When we hold on to a ministry with no thought of training others to do the same thing, we may actually be revealing a very arrogant heart that says, I alone can do this ministry. And I'll do it until I run out of gas and pity the poor person who has to come behind me and try to figure out how to do this. It's pride. Maturity leads us to turn over to others the work that we do for God. Mature leadership seeks to train others in that work. As we see in 2 Timothy 2, In verse 2, Paul says 
to Timothy, you then my child. Now notice that way he relates to him. You, my child. I am in a fatherly position here with you, my son. Be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I've received it. I've passed it on to you. You pass it on to others who will pass it on to others. As God's people, we should always be thinking, how can I bring a younger generation into the ministry that I do to carry on the work in the days ahead? I think we should really then lead in every ministry of our churches as if our best days are ahead of us. Never as the best days were some leader in the past, some moment in the past, as if we can never move past it. We need to train and mentor and teach and eventually turn responsibilities over to capable servants of Christ who are equipped to continue serving Him when our best days are over and their best days are ahead. I think we certainly imbibe this spirit as a church, and I want to commend it and encourage it forward as we watch as Bible teachers turn over and train and develop other teachers. Let's pursue that and grow that within our assembly. I think we certainly see this as we welcome, and you as a church, I think, to be commended for welcoming in seminary students who come in among us and we permit them and encourage them in their teaching and preaching ministry to try some things out, to teach us the Word. And I, I don't get the sense that we gather standing back and saying, well, we kind of just have to play a part here and fill a seat. I mean, it helps that they handle the Word well. But as they handle that Word, we realize they're feeding us. They're doing the work of service. And as a church, you have to commend that. Um, I met with a doctor not long ago, and he explained to me that at the hospital there would be other doctors there that weren't really doctors and that they were learning on me. I was a lab rat, he was telling me, in really nice terms. And he said, are you okay with that? And of course you are. I mean, if, unless you're so oriented toward yourself, you say, yes, we understand that. In the medical field, we're all benefited by those who are learning the ropes little by little as they're being mentored and brought along. So it is among the people of God. And may we commend it. And we think of Joshua serving alongside Moses for 40 years. He suffered his griefs. He suffered his trials. He shared his joys and triumphs. He learned to serve God faithfully. It was a unique situation to have so long in that mentorship um, student role, so to speak. But Joshua clearly learned to serve God faithfully in relationship to Moses. He didn't get the message from Moses, you can't do this, you can't do this, this is all about me, you hold me up, that's all your job is. Moses said, God, will you put your hand on a man who has the spirit that I have, who has the desire to shepherd your people, and he turns that over willingly, prayerfully here in a moment of great grief for him. He says, God, raise up one to replace me. Joshua was nearly as much a part of Moses' legacy as Moses was. Do you hear that? Joshua was nearly as much a legacy for Moses as Moses himself was. May we take careful note. And secondly, let me speak to the second generation, to young people among us. I encourage you, children, but also those of you who are in adulthood or who are relating to parents, step forward and seek to learn Christian service from your parents and older men and women in the assembly. Be responsive. No, I'm saying to you as I preach this sermon, that's you. Step into that. Learn from those who are older than you. Join with them in the ministry. Don't just simply wait for someone to talk to you and hope that they never do. But join in with them in the work of the Lord. Don't be undependable, untrustworthy, irresponsible in the things of God. 
But seek to step out, trust God, serve Him with the help of that older generation. Barring the return of Christ, when the current leaders of this church are dead, or infirm, or too weak to carry out their duties, where will you be then? It might be in a different church, but where will you be then? Will you be serving Christ, functioning faithfully, doing what they gave as an example to do? Will you be seeing their life as an example and living that out in adulthood yourself? Where will you be then? I know where I'll be. I'll pray, you know, maybe in a wheelchair drooling or dead long before my time, worn out, or who knows. It's not a real pretty picture for what's coming for us old people with gray hair. It is beautiful. It's where God wants us. That's what we'll be doing. Trying to finish out our days and stay alive until God says, out of the pool. It's your time. But where will you be? We're not going to be here. Where will you be? And then secondly, young people, second generation, Never, ever let your parents' spiritual failures draw you away from a vibrant walk with Christ. Never let that happen. I hope you have faithful, godly parents and that you give thanks for that and you're following their example and you recognize what a massive blessing that is. But if your parents are spiritually weak, If they often dishonor God, never let that serve as an excuse to live in their sin and failure. Never let that serve as a reason not to nurture a warm relationship with Christ. To turn away from Jesus because of the sinful hypocrisy of your parents is about the stupidest, most destructive thing you could ever do to your own life. Why? Would you do that? Why sacrifice the warm, vibrant relationship with Jesus that you could have and all that it, the blessing of it because your parents did? Makes no sense. Respond to this call on your life. Live for Him who is the ultimate satisfaction of your life now and forever and ever. And then third, as we think of our shepherd king, Moses prayed for a shepherd to lead God's people. Moses was himself a flawed shepherd of God's people. If anyone could do it all on their own, it would seem to be Moses. He's not even allowed to go into the promised land because of his failure. He's not presenting himself in this book as the end all that had it all figured out and right. And Israel's history as it goes forward, as we look at Balaam's prophecy in chapters 22 to 24, we see evidences there of the son who will come, the son of the nation, the great shepherd, King David, who will rule his enemies. But he too was flawed and incomplete. Well, we move to Israel's monarchy, and surely there's a king in this string somewhere who will be the great shepherd king of God's people in faithfulness. But we recognize there is no such king. There is no such king until one comes who is the good shepherd, John 10, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who will rule the nations. The Lord Jesus Christ, our great shepherd king, all is pointing to him. He is the fulfillment, the leader, the shepherd, the king of his people, and none other. Some years ago, Beth and I stood on the veranda of a hotel in Jerusalem by the kindness of this church. We looked east at the Abram mountain range, and we saw it. You know what that means? That means somebody standing on that mountain range saw us. Which means, if I reason this outright, Moses set his eyes unknowingly on the spot 
the city where Jesus would die and rise again. On that spot, in the promised land, where Jesus would die for sinners as the Lamb of God who would shepherd His people. There where Jesus would be buried and would rise from the grave, conquering not merely the Canaanites like Joshua, but conquering death and Satan as the new Joshua, the ultimate Savior. Moses cast his eyes where that would take place in salvation history. And Jesus came in the fulfillment of all that the Scriptures point to, the Good Shepherd of our souls. For those who know Him, may it move us to love Him, to be that second generation of faith who doesn't look to the failures of the generation before, but looks to the faith that is ahead of us, the promises of God to serve Him and to know that we live for another land. That we will lay our heavy burden down and we will enter into glory someday by God's grace. For those who know not the Savior, let me say that history has been calibrated to point you personally to Jesus Christ dying in your place. Calibrated to point to Jesus Christ risen. You can't see it in your own strength. But in the power of God, in the mercies of Christ to you, I encourage you, come to this King Savior, this Shepherd Savior, this one to whom Moses pointed, this one to whom priesthood and sacrifice and the people of God on the Jordan River pointed. And join His people by His grace as you come to identify with Him, crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. We call you to that response today by God's grace. Father, we thank you for the reminder of your word. It's truth.